an announcement uh, we are facing this next week, something very, very important, and that is the first month of the new year, God's new year. Uh, that begins on Tuesday evening, so we'll have a New Moon Bible study at 7.30 Tuesday evening. 7.30 Tuesday evening, the uh, first month of the year Bible study. Now before I get into a sermon, I'd, I'd like to go back to Leviticus 25. I've had some questions recently about, uh, well let's go to Exodus first of all. Uh, where did I write that down? Exodus 23:11. I've had questions about the seventh year and what we should or should not do in terms of planning and so on. So I went back and reviewed this to refresh my own mind. But he has, says here in Exodus 23, verse 11, uh, The seventh year you shall let the land rest and lie still, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field shall eat. In like manner you shall deal with your vineyard and with your olive yard. So he's saying we're not to uh, pick the fruit of uh, the olives or of the grapes or to plant during the seventh year. It gives us more detail back in Leviticus 25. And uh, he says, verse 2, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give you, uh, then shall the land keep a Sabbath and be eternal. Six years you shall sow your field. Six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest to the land, a Sabbath for the eternal. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. You don't normally you cut grapes back in the fall, uh, almost to, to the stalk. But he says don't do that in the seventh year. That which grows of its own accord of your harvest, you shall not reap. So whatever just volunteers, you don't pick and use. Neither gather the grapes of the vine unblessed, the And the reason this question is coming up is we recognize this year as the seventh year uh, of the seven-year cycle leading to the Jubilee and I think one more cycle. The Sabbath of the Lamb shall be food for you, for you and for your servant and for your maid and your hired servant and for the stranger that sojourns with you and your cattle and your beast and so on. And number seven Sabbaths of years, seven times seven, and then you have the Jubilee in verse nine. Cause the trumpet of the Jubilee. Throughout the land, verse 10, and you shall hallow the fiftieth year, and proclaim liberty throughout all the land, and to all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee to you, and you shall return every man to his possession, and you shall return every man to his family. Of course, the jubilee will be the time the millennium begins, and God is going to return the land to the people. 
A jubilee shall that fiftieth year be, you shall not sow, neither reap, that which goes of itself in it, nor gather the grapes in it of your vine undressed. Now it's a little uh, that you eat of the seventh year back uh, there in verse uh, 6. The Sabbath of the land shall be food for you. Does that mean you eat what the land produces in the seventh year? No, it doesn't. And he explains that down here a little further down. Uh, let's go down to verse 20. Now, here's a question that might come up. And it may be based partly on the way he phrased that back at the beginning of this. If you shall say, what shall we eat the seventh year? So here he gives us specifics of what we can eat the seventh year. Not that which voluntarily comes up in your garden or in your field or whatever. Or whatever your olive or grape vines or your trees produce. Behold, we shall not sow nor gather in our increase. He says, Then I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth fruit for three years. And you shall sow the eighth year, and yet eat of old fruit until the ninth year, until your harvest time. Until her fruits come in, you shall eat of the old store. So he says there that in the seventh year, he will bless in the sixth year, and you'll have food for the seventh year. And then if you plant in the eighth year, uh, you eat of the old store until the harvest in that year. So we are not to eat uh, whatever volunteers itself in the seventh year. Now, we have read and worked at following this over the decades in the end-time church. I know I heard of it, and it was preached decades ago. I don't know how many farmers actually uh, attempted to follow this, but I don't recall hearing much, if any, of having a crop that was three years long in the sixth year. So, God apparently has not been instituting this, and probably will not, on a worldwide basis and throughout all Israel until uh, the millennium. I suspect that then it will be followed very carefully. Uh, so, are we obligated, if God hasn't blessed us with three times the crop in the sixth year, then He hasn't done His part first, should we follow through with our part? And I don't know that we are obligated in that sense, because normally speaking, throughout Scripture, God says, if you do your part, then I will do my part, right? It's always contingent. You obey me, and then I will bless you. In this particular case, he says, if you do obey me, then I will do my part first, and then you will eat of it for uh, those the seventh and the eighth year. So he hasn't done it ahead of time. Of course, we're not farmers either, most of us. Well, none of us here. Uh, but is it something that will be instituted in the millennium? And I think that certainly it shall be. Uh, 
So where are we? And here's what I feel and recommend. I don't know that we are absolutely obligated since God is not doing this in the sixth year. But at the same time, I think that we should recognize the principle. Uh, We recognize the seven-year cycles, and many of us have been blessed in a third tithe year. Now, that I have heard of a lot over the decades. Not of three years' produce in the sixth year, but I've heard of blessings coming to help us make it through the third tithe year. So I do believe God has been blessing the seven-year cycle, with the third tithe being in effect, and he is certainly going to bless the Jubilee. And I think that he did, by calling Herbert Armstrong in 1926 and 27, uh, on a Jubilee year, following Christ's proclamation there in Luke 4, in uh, 26-27 A.D., So, the Jubilee was significant here in the end time to the end time work. So, I do believe that the 50-year Jubilee is very much in effect, and that God measures his 6,000 years of Satan and man's rule by the Jubilees. And when this next one comes up in 26 and 27, it appears to me that that will be the end of the 6,000 years, and all these prophecies that are beginning to as we sit here today, happen in earnest, uh, will be completed by 2026 and 2027 with the return of Christ uh, to rule the earth in the Jubilee year in in 2027. That appears to be the case. So, we only have this really one year left, uh, this seventh year, then we have the millennium coming up Uh, at the end of the next seven years, it appears. So what does it hurt us? Uh, We're not farmers anyway. What does it hurt us not to eat what just voluntarily comes up from our pots and our pans and and whatnot that we might have out, or our gardens? Uh, We don't really need it at this point, do we? Uh, We're getting by, we're eating, we're doing all right, so whatever just happens to grow from your garden from last year won't amount to much anyway. And you certainly couldn't sustain you for a year. So I think in principle we should follow this, whether God is fully instituting it yet or not. uh, It's still good to honor that tradition which he set and follow through with it. And then when he institutes it, fully in the millennium, uh, we will have complied with it in whatever small way we need to today and be ready then to help institute it for the whole world because we've been following through. So as a principle, uh, I think it's a good thing to honor, even though I don't know that it is fully in force as yet. So just a, a couple comments about that. Now, as you know, and I'm sure I don't have to tell you, the coronavirus is spreading very rapidly now in our country. And I just read that there's, uh, in New York, there's one person an hour dying now from the coronavirus. And it's probably higher than that because I hear reports of people who have not been tested dying. And the cause of death is listed as uh, uh, 
pulmonary failure. <laughs> the lung's not working. And that's, of course, what the virus does. So unless you've been tested, it's not officially from the virus, and they're not testing many people. So the death rate may be a lot higher than we even realize. And as you know, we have parts of the country now being shut down. California, Illinois, New York, Washington, and that probably will grow through this coming week as more and more cases break out and they realize that they can't stop it unless they shut down people being together and mingling and uh, spreading it. So we shall see how that goes. And I'm not going to comment right now about the constitutionality of it and all those issues which are being talked about in the alternative and even the mainstream media at this point. I think I have something far more important to talk about today, uh, even though the setting is of increasing trouble. And we're going to continue to have more and more trouble. But I don't know how many of you read the Berean uh, from Church of the Great God, usually by John Reitenbaugh or sometimes his son Richard or, uh, or others on the staff there. But there's one that came out on March 18th, just a few days ago, that I find quite intriguing. I think it could be very, very important. And what caught my eye about it when I did read it was its brevity. It's only two paragraphs long. And John Reitenbaugh in his life has never written an article two paragraphs long until this one. He is generally quite thorough, quite detailed, and his articles tend to be quite a bit longer. And, as I do, he gives series of sermon and goes into great detail. And on one subject, it can be five, six, seven, eight sermons, uh, and so on. So for him to write something this brief catches my eye immediately. Why would he address a subject and give us two paragraphs on it. And I think we'll see that as we go into this, because I want to analyze what he wrote. And I think it could be very significant. Uh, some of you may have read this. I know some of you have. Zechariah 4, verses 11 through 14, from March 18. I'll read the verses first. Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Then he answered me and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, Zechariah speaking, No, my Lord. So the angel said, These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the eternal of the whole earth. So Christ is going to be standing, not sitting anymore, but standing. And these two stand with him, or beside him, to do a work. Now John then begins to quote, or to talk about, these three Verses. 
And I quote, When these verses are combined with the information regarding the two witnesses in Revelation 11, it is clear the olive trees feeding the lampstand with oil, empowering it to give light, are the two witnesses feeding the entire church. Now, let's analyze this as we go. No, let's, let's read it all first, and then we'll come back and go through it. I think it would be good to get an idea of what all he says. If we are indeed, <clears throat> if we are indeed nearing the time for God to raise up the two witnesses, then we should expect first one, then the other, to come to the attention of the church. A spiritual unity will develop as church members voluntarily submit themselves to be fed and led by the two witnesses. Second paragraph. If we know what to look for, because we are familiar with the patterns God has revealed to us, it will put us into the position to see God regathering reforming the church from the destructive calamity that he put it in for its good. He is actively creating whatever it takes to save his people from their sins. John W. Reitenbaugh. Shortest article on record. Now, the first question that I would address here would be, this is a very important subject, okay? It's all through Haggai, Zechariah, Revelation 11, and really all through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Minor Prophets. It's all through the prophecies about these two and what they will do with the church. So if he were to be writing an article in general, let's say, about this subject, he has an awful lot of material to go through to explain the whole thing. Right? An awful lot of material in the Bible that could be used here. Now, his son Richard has addressed this subject in previous Bereans a few years back, perhaps in sermons, I don't remember, and maybe even in an article or two in the Forerunner. Uh, but John has been pretty much silent about this, so far as I know, since '96. Uh, So why suddenly here do we have an article this long about it? Now that appears significant to me. When I first read this, I thought, that is quite interesting. And then the more I thought about it, the more I began to realize there's a lot more here than meets the eye. What is not said may be as important as what is said, because there's a lot not said. Let's go back, then, and analyze what he did right. He says, when these verses are combined with the information of the two witnesses in Revelation 11, it is clear the olive trees uh, feeding the lampstand with oil, empowering it to give light, or the two witnesses feeding the entire church. Now, let's go back to Zechariah 4.
he quoted verses 11 through 14 uh, about the two anointed ones. Then if you go to Revelation 11, and we've done it many times, so I'm not going there at the moment. It says, these are the two anointed ones. And those are the only two places that this is even mentioned in the Bible. Zechariah 4 and Revelation 11. So it has to be talking about the same two individuals. So in Revelation 11, it calls them two witnesses of God. And in Zechariah 4, it is a prophecy for the future before Revelation 11 was even written. And once it was written, this is the only thing that Zechariah 4.14 has to tie to in Scripture. So God, who knows all, wrote a prophecy 2,500-600 years ago, which tied in with one written about 2,000 years ago, ahead of time. Now it says here, he says, they'll be feeding the entire church. Go back to chapter 3, and it says in verse 9, For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Now if you go back to Revelation 1 and 2, you see that the seven eyes are the eyes of the angels overseeing the seven churches. Then he goes and explains about the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 as end-time churches. So, that's what it is talking about. So, there's a stone laid before this individual Joshua here in Zechariah 3. And the eyes of the church are on it. Well, what stone is this? Who is the chief cornerstone? It is Christ, Ephesians 2.20. So Christ being the chief cornerstone will have the eyes of the church turned to him. So before this individual here that this is prophesying of, one of the witnesses, you have the stone, which is Christ, and all seven eyes turn to that stone. All seven churches will look upon Christ, is what this is saying. Behold, I will engrave the the graving thereof, says the Eternal of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. So, this is a time when God forgives. The most prominent time mentioned in the Scripture when God forgives would be at Passover. We observe that every year as a sign of his death and the forgiveness of our sins. So the Passover then becomes a very, very important day. I think the two holiest days of the year would have to be Passover, when our sins are forgiven so that we can become at one with Christ, who is sinless, and then the Day of Atonement, which says we become at one with him at the wedding. So one symbolizes the wedding to come and the forgiveness and lack of sin, and the other shows the atonement that occurs because a sinless Christ is marrying his sinless church, after we've been changed, of course, pictured by the Feast of Trumpets, 
But the wedding itself is bigger than the announcement at the Feast of Trumpets when the resurrection occurs. So these two are going to be preaching the Word of God to give the church light. And it does show uh, the seven lamps there. Those represent the seven churches. Let's go back to Isaiah 4. We'll be back here to Zechariah in a bit. Now, he, he talks in chapter 2 and 3 of Isaiah about how wicked we are here in the end time and how our men shall fall by the sword and the mighty in the war at the end of the chapter of chapter 3. And her gates shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate shall sit upon the ground. Now, that's reminiscent of Revelation 18 when Babylon, America, is destroyed. And in that day, so at the time when we're seeing desolation beginning to come upon our land, at that time, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel, only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. Now, as John mentioned, God has punished the church for his own purposes for our good. And I remember back in 96, 97, him quoting the book of Lamentations, where God says over and over and over and over again, I am bringing this upon you. Wasn't the devil, it was God who brought what we have gone through since the church broke up, who caused it. Now, he may have let the devil do his dirty work, some of it, but he's the one behind it, and he caused it. So we're speaking of a time when seven women will take hold of one man. We'll go back to Zechariah 3 in a minute, and you're going to see who that man is. In that day shall the branch of the eternal be beautiful and glorious. Notice the word, the branch there. The branch of the eternal. In this day, when we see punishment and death coming upon our nation, and it's begun now, we're going to see very shortly this branch become beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for whom? For them that are escaped of Israel. Now he's going to talk about a gathering here in a little bit, and us escaping from the world and escaping to a certain place. So this man that seven women or seven churches will take hold of is also called here the branch. And he will become beautiful and excellent and comely because God's earth for these people in the desert, Isaiah 35, will bloom as a rose. And he will give us the Garden of Eden, Isaiah 55. Same conditions for those who escape what is coming. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy. 
Be you holy and be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. So Zion and Jerusalem are where the escaped of Israel are going to be. The true Zion and the true Israel, or Jerusalem. Verse 4. Now when is this going to happen? When the Eternal shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. Did he not tell us in Revelation 3 that because of our lackadaisical, lazy, spiritual lukewarmness, we would be scattered and burned and refined and put through all kinds of difficulty which has occurred. And then he is going to purge all of that and wash the filth away. Again, Passover is the greatest symbol of the filth being uh, washed away. Now notice what else he does. Verse 5, And the Eternal will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion, wherever people dwell in the Mount Zion area, and upon her assemblies, the meeting of the church, Hebrews 12, the church is called Mount Zion, it's called Jerusalem, it's called the uh, Church of the Firstborn, and it is associated and equated with Christ there. So, with her meetings, there will be a cloud and smoke by day, so over Zion is going to be a cloud and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a defense. Now he tells us in Zechariah 2, when this all begins to come to pass, he will be a wall of fire around his people that he gathers who escape of Israel to Zion. And he tells us just before that, that we are to escape from Babylon to Zion. End of uh, Zechariah 1. Now, let's go on here. And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and for a place of refuge, and for a covering from storm and from rain. So God is going to form some kind of an atmospheric bubble that protects his people, and it is combined with clouds, with smoke, with fire at night, and it won't get too hot in the daytime because you have this covert. So we're going to have perfect weather just like the Garden of Eden as it expounds more so in Isaiah 55. So we have here a man that the seven churches take hold of, seven women, and he will be called the branch. And it is a time when people will go to Zion and Jerusalem and be protected. Okay? Now John is implying all of this without their going here and showing it to us. Because what he said implies it. On our way back there, let's go to Isaiah 41 again. Isaiah 41. 
Here I want verse uh, 18. I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. And I will plant in the wilderness the cedar. And he goes on to mention seven trees in the wilderness and desert. That they may see, verse 20, and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Eternal has done this, and the Holy One of Israel has created it. So, trees are churches, even as women are churches in symbolism in Scripture. And it shows the latter end of the things happening at the end in verse 22. So, those seven churches, those seven lamps, those seven trees will be planted in the desert in the wilderness. Is where they'll be planted. Zion and Jerusalem are in that area in the southwestern United States. So, he shows here what he says is the two witnesses will feed the entire church, all seven of them. Lampstands, trees, women, all the various symbolisms of the church are brought together in that one statement, the entire church. Now, if we are indeed nearing the time for God to raise up the two witnesses. Now, why did he say that? If we are indeed. That tells me that he thinks it is. Why would he bring it up otherwise? When he says, if we are indeed, that means that he has either been watching world events, watching what is happening in this country, and seeing that it equates to the prophecies which I've been reading you. Now, I'm beginning to wonder, as I read all this, what does he know? Why did he write this? Has he had a dream? Is he just simply waking up by what he sees happening in the nation and the world? Or what instigated this? What's the causal reason for writing this article? I think it's very clear that he thinks it is indeed the time that this is very near. Or he wouldn't write this article in its brevity and only make about four points and shut it off. He obviously understands a whole lot more than he has written here some of which I just showed you in Isaiah 4 and Isaiah 41. And we skipped chapter 6 when he says, when will this happen? And it says, when the cities are being destroyed. Let's go back to Isaiah 6 right quick. Same kind of context. Isaiah is saying, he sees all these things coming where Christ, in the beginning of chapter 6, is sitting upon the throne and is being um, introduced in a glorious way here. And Isaiah sees it, and he says in verse 5, Woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Compared to what I'm seeing here in vision, uh, I'm nothing. 
and I will dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So it, both me and the people around me are not clean like we ought to be. Because I've seen the King, the Eternal of hosts, and I'm scared. And one of the seraphim said to me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. If you read Zechariah 3, you'll see someone whose sins are taken away and given godly righteousness. Also I heard the voice of the Eternal saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Now, Isaiah was feeling a little better after the angel had touched the burning coal to his lips. He said, Here I am, send me. So the angel said, Go, tell this people, Hear you indeed, but understand not. And see you indeed, but perceive not. Now, the whole church believes to some degree in God. They believe in some kind of an end-time deliverance, whether it's Petra or whatever they're thinking today. But they don't understand. They don't grasp. They don't know the story. He says, Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. Now, God is not going to deal with the whole church as you see in Haggai and Zechariah. He's going to gather a remnant. And he's going to tell us here at the end of this chapter how big it's going to be. So he's not going to deal with the whole church at this time, just 10% of it. So he said, people are not going to listen when you tell this story. They won't hear it. Then said I, Lord, how long? How long will this go on? All right, he tells us. And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. Now, we've read this in past years and wondered when that would be. Today, as we sit here and read it, we are watching the process unfold when people are dying and their houses being emptied and the land becoming desolate. There's another place, I didn't look it up, where it says our highways will be desolate. Have you seen pictures lately of our big cities and no cars on the streets? Our highways are getting desolate. They're desolate now because of a plague and a pestilence that has come upon us. And they're going to get more and more desolate once trouble breaks out and riots come and food wars and civil war and people will be afraid to come out for anything except to fight their neighbors for food and wind up eating their own children and spouses. This will be preached. And this people will remain deaf and dumb to what's going on until... These conditions occur. And the eternal have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. 
So, upheaval, a time of great trouble and difficulty. So, this message has been going out now for 24 years. And it has continued to go on until we see the conditions that he's talking about and describing here. And then he says, there will be a gathering. So he says, the nation's going to be destroyed. This is Ezekiel 5. Third by famine and pestilence, a third by the sword, and a third will go into slavery. Okay? A great forsaking and everything emptied. But yet in it, in spite of all this that is starting to come down right now, shall be a tenth, and it shall return and shall be eaten as a teal tree and as an oak whose substance is in them. When they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. So a ten percent holy people will survive and return to Jerusalem and Zion to finish the work in spite of all that is going on starting now, starting a month ago, that is going to get worse and worse until Ezekiel 5 is totally fulfilled. But in the middle of all this, he's going to bring 10% out, a remnant, a gathering, as John put it. Now, let's go back to the Berean. Then we should, if the, if the time is indeed here, which he obviously believes or he wouldn't be writing about, then we should expect first one, then the other to come to the attention of the church. He doesn't give you scripture and verse to show that. He just makes a statement. Now, if for him to make that statement, he has to understand from some perspective that this is what's going to happen, right? How does he know that unless he read it somewhere? Why didn't he write it here for you to read? Is he hiding something? Is he leaving something out on purpose? How does he know one will come and then the other to the attention of the church? Hmm. Where did he get that? Well, I can tell you where he got it. He got it from Isaiah. I could go back there and read it to you. Where it says, one will come and speak of them. So one will have a message, and later, and later on, it will come to pass that the one that was giving the message was speaking of the two that are to come. So the message comes from one spot. Now, let's go back to Zechariah 3, which precedes the verses that he is quoting in chapter 4. Zechariah 3. <clears throat> Here is addressing an individual that is in type called uh, Joshua, a type of Christ, Joshua. 
Jesus, Joshua, and the two witnesses are both uh, types of Christ, even as all of you are. Because Isaiah 41 and 42 says several times, speaking to the gathering or the 10%, you are my witnesses. It's just that two have a specific job of leading the church, and then once they get the church squared away, going to the world as a final witness of who God is. But we're all types of Christ. We're all witnesses. And he said up here that they would become the light of the world. You've been hearing this story now for years. How we are to be, as Christ said, a light on a hill. And I've gone and showed you how the church is to be a light from Zion to the whole world. John knows this stuff. He's read this stuff. He may have read it recently. I don't know. But he heard the whole story in great detail from January of 1996 until July of 2000. He heard all these scriptures I've been reading to you for 24 years in that period of time. Now, whether he has recently gone back and reviewed some of those scriptures or listened to those sermons or had a dream or what, I do not know. And I'll be curious to know someday what precipitated this two-paragraph article. Now, here in Zechariah 3, it says that he will cause the iniquity to pass from this individual Joshua and be given clean clothing or righteousness. Remember Isaiah 54 when it says that the gathering will occur, and in the last verse it says their righteousness will be of him. So our self-righteousness and Joshua's would all be taken away, and we would all be enjoying the righteousness of God instead of our vanity and ego and self-righteousness. So what he says of the one here has reference to the whole gathering. It'll be God's righteousness for a change. So, a message is given here, starting verse 6. The angel of the eternal protested Joshua, saying, If you walk in my ways, keep my charge, my statutes, my commandments, my (coughs) rules that I've laid on you, You'll judge my house and keep my courts, and I will give you places to stand or walk among these that stand by, which was the angels in the kingdom of God. Now, here in verse 8, we begin to see what John's talking about. John Breitenbaugh here. Verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest. So this Joshua is high priest of the end-time church. You and your fellows that sit before you. So whoever this is, it includes the congregation that's listening. For they are men wondered at, or as my margin says, men of signs or wonders. So signs and wonders are going to occur among the disciples or the members sitting before Joshua. That congregation. Now, whether the men in that congregation 
perform miracles or whether they have miracles done upon them perhaps remains to be seen because we're a bunch of old men and women and God says there'll be some of those that survive to the end but how many times have we seen the verses which say that we'll have dear legs will be renewed will be given strength and power to do the work that has to be done and that's the last verse of the book of Habakkuk where he's been going through this and seeing all this, and he's getting discouraged and frustrated on how long it's going on. And then he gets reminded, who is God in heaven? And then he says, I think it's time for me to sit back and wait and see what God does. And I know before it's over, he's going to give me my dear legs. Last verse we have, Habakkuk. Okay? So, these are going to be men of signs and wonders. Whether... They do them, or they're done to them. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. What are these signs and wonders designed to do? They are to bring forth his servant, the branch. Now, I want to address two issues here. What about this branch that is God's servant? And uh, when will this occur? Now, we're being told here that if it is indeed nearing the time, these things have to occur, and one will show up first. Didn't we just read that the signs and wonders done in the congregation will bring forth his servant, the branch? Go to Isaiah 52. Keep your thumb here if you want. Isaiah 52. We've read this many times. He has to have read it. I know he's heard it because I preached it to him. There will come one that gives good tidings of good, verse 7, that publishes salvation, that says to Zion, the true church, your God reigns. We've gone over those scriptures so many times about how who the true God is. And you shall know, says Ezekiel dozens of times, who is the eternal. So here you have him, second line in verse 7, that brings this message. Isaiah 40, the end of chapter 39 about Herbert Armstrong as being Hezekiah. There is one who comes and preaches a message of good, a message of comfort, that their warfare is accomplished, and brings this message of good news that will occur out of all this trouble that we've had as Isaiah 6 shows, which we just read. Now, he, or one, will bring this message. And in verse 8, thy watch men, more than one, two to be exact, With the voice together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye when, here tells you when, when the Eternal shall bring back or turn around Zion. Turn his face from looking away toward her, as other scriptures show. And how does this happen? We just read it in Zechariah 3. 
the congregation of signs and wonders will bring forth the branch. Now, here it's speaking of the two. One who brings a message, and then when that message is comes to a, a conclusion or a climax, God will turn his face again and begin to bless. And that's what those signs and wonders in Zechariah 3 are all about is that this other individual here will see those, and then they will see eye to eye. And that will reveal the branch. So a work of signs and wonders has to occur through one and a congregation first. And then is when they will see eye to eye and not before. That's when. If you go on and read the rest of this, he tells us it's time then to break into joy because God is beginning to bless again. So that shows it's at that time, verse 9. And he will make bare his holy arm in the eyes of the nations. So God is going to begin to do things on a worldwide basis so we can see. And he tells us then, the remnant, to go out from the unclean thing and be clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. That's where it says in verse 12, you don't have to hurry or go by flight. Make a plan to escape. Do it in reason, not panic, because I'm going to come and protect you from behind. So, when these signs and wonders occur in Zechariah 3, and the branch is revealed, the other witness... It will be time for miracles and joy and happiness, and that is the time then that the remnant begins to gather because they see the signs and wonders. They have all seven of their eyes on Christ who is doing these miracles in Zechariah 3. I'll bring forth my servant the branch... For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone, not seven stones, one stone, Christ, shall be seven eyes. And I will engrave the graving, says the Eternal of hosts. This is something that is written in stone, Christ being the stone. And I'll remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Would that be Passover day? We're right now approaching the first month of the new year. Is this the year? We'll know real soon, won't we? I know somebody that thinks it may be. Or he wouldn't have said, if the time is indeed near. Right here. In the first of two paragraphs. He feels it's near. How near? Maybe... It's been revealed to him how near it is. I don't know. But this is a really strange article, if not. Two paragraphs long. Making a few succinct points without telling you what's the basis for those points. I'm giving you the basis for them right here. Things that he knows that caused him to say what he said without telling us how he knew. 
And these other scriptures say it. So he says, one and then the other will come to the attention of the church. So through signs and wonders and miracles, they'll begin to see eye to eye, and the branch will be revealed. Well, now who is the branch? Let's go, first of all, to Ezekiel 17. Ezekiel 17. This is the parable and the riddle, which describes worldwide church of God here at the end, and how everything happened to it just like it has happened. Very clear when you understand it. Now, when all this is said and done, and uh, worldwide becomes fugitives, verse 21, and all his bands will fall by the sword. They're going into the tribulation. And they that remain shall be scattered to the winds. Third taken into captivity. And you'll know I've spoken it. Okay, then God shows what happens next in verse 22. Thus says the eternal God, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar. He's talking about the church. So when he talks about his branch, when in the context of the two witnesses in Zechariah 3 and 4, he mentions the branch. You go back here and you find what God is doing. He's selecting a branch, a bough, a limb, a twig. I will take a branch of the high cedar and will set it. Now, worldwide never became truly a high cedar. It became a vine that turned its roots toward Herbert Armstrong and then got worse under Joe DeKotch and then is taken captive. But God says he'll take a branch of the high cedar. That could be a reference to Christ, who is the high cedar. But it will be from the church, Okay? Now, what is he going to do with it? I'll take a branch, and I will set it. I will crop off from the top of the young twigs a tender one, and will plant it upon a high mountain and imminent. In the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it. The mountains of Israel, of Zion, and Jerusalem is where he's going to plant it. And it shall bring forth other limbs or boughs, and bear fruit, and be a goodly cedar. Under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing, and the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell. So, people from all over the world are going to come, north, south, east, and west, to be able to dwell under, or in the protection and the guidance of, this one that God plants. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Eternal, have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree. In that sense, I think the analogy refers to, to Worldwide Church of God as being that which was bigger or higher. Uh, and out of it, he's exalted something that was pretty small, not very big. A small work. A man who was not an evangelist, who was not 
recognize as being a leader of the church necessarily. I brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree, have dried up the green tree, and have made the dry tree to flourish. So, after Worldwide dies, it is dried up, he'll bring something out of that dry tree, someone who was associated with it, and make it flourish. I, the Eternal, have spoken and have done it. So he's going to take a branch, a bough, a limb, a twig. So that's his branch that is going to be leading the end-time church. A branch. Someone looked up a name back in... 96, I may have looked it up myself, but I know it was looked up by someone I remember very well, and said that it's the right branch, the right bow. It's a German uh, name that they were using as the basis for this, the right bow. Now, you can translate that however you want, but it's the right branch, the right bow. Who wrote this article? A fellow by the name of John Wrightbow. Wrightenbow. I don't know how close that translation was in the German when it was looked up by that individual, but it sure seemed to fit. Okay. Now let's go to... Well, I've already gone to Isaiah 4 about the seven women and the seven trees of 41. But here in Zechariah 3... In verse 8, he talks about he'll bring forth that branch, the one that he plucked off out of a dry tree in Ezekiel 17. Let's uh, keep your thumb finger here. I'll hit John 15. Little Draw the New Testament into this a little bit. Revelation already did, but let's go to John 15. Uh, I am the true vine... And my father is the husbandman. Wait a minute, is this the one I want? I'm not sure that's the chapter I wanted. Anyway, Christ is the vine. And he says, you're clean through the words I've spoken. He tells us to be clean there in Isaiah 52. And you abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Now, Christ uh, is the vine, and we're branches. But there's one specific branch that is revealed, which we see there in Zechariah 3, verse 8. I'm the vine, you're the branches. So the whole church is branches. He that abides in me, and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. And there is a work to be raised up, to regenerate the church, and then to preach the gospel around the world as a witness. And it can't be done without Christ. He is the vine, and we are branches, and there is one branch that is the leader of them all. I guess that is the one that I had in mind. Now, let's go on here a little bit back in Zechariah. He'll remove the iniquity in one day. Verse 16 of Zechariah 3, 
In that day, says the Eternal of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and the fig tree. So he shows that the church will again prosper, both spiritually and physically, (coughs) that everyone will be able to take care of himself. Now, the world will not be able to do that because they'll be running around the streets eating each other and then going into captivity if they're not killed by the sword. But God's people can. Now, notice uh, verse uh, 6 of chapter 4, right after what John quoted here about the seven lamps feeding the seven churches. Verse 6, he answered and spoke to me, saying, This is the word of the Eternal to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Eternal of hosts. We just read in John fifteen four that it is by the power of God, not the power of man. Who are you then, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. Now the last two verses of Haggai show that God will make Zerubbabel a signet or a flag, or a banner of God before the whole earth. So he's one of the leader of the two witnesses. You'll be the, the world, the mountains, the governments of the world will become a plain. Plagues will come, as Revelation 11 says. And he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace to it. Now what's the headstone? Who died? Worldwide Church of God died. Sardis died. And here is this individual coming forth to say grace, grace, ahead of or following that which died. This is something that follows the dead church of Sardis. And grace is given. I think he even mentions grace down here. If if so, we'll get to it. Maybe it's another article I was thinking of. So, in death of the church, the dry tree, that which died, he's going to raise up his servant, the branch. A twig of God that has life. So, he is able then to say, pardon, be given to it. When we remove our iniquity in one day, didn't he say in the previous chapter? Is it Passover? Could be. When grace again comes to the church. They'll see eye to eye, remember, when God turns it around. And the signs and wonders occur. And then you can see God's grace and mercy being showed upon the remnant. That which is dead is dead. But that which is alive will grow and produce. That's what we've been reading. I understand that now, and I didn't back in 96 to 2000 when I went through this. Because I didn't know at that point the worldwide was Sardis and it was going to die. But suddenly, as I read Headstone, it's obvious what it's talking about. Moreover, the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also finish it, and you shall know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me to you. Now, when I did the series on 
the Minor Prophets from 90, about 97, I think it started, through July of 2000, I had gone through, and I was going through Zechariah when my termination with a congregation, with the Church of the Great God occurred. And I think it was in the last sermon. I might have gotten to chapter 6, which is talking about the same thing. But I remember remarking when I went through here that the branch, or Zerubbabel, will appear and he'll lay a foundation. And then I remember the exact expression I used, and I said it appears then that if he started it and it wasn't finished, then he has to come back and his hands will finish it. And then I said something like, in other words, it appears that Zerubbabel is out to lunch for a while. Now, if you read Isaiah 41, it says, let's go back there. Keep your finger here. We've read it before. I'm going to read it again. We used to apply this to Herbert Armstrong, who was physically blind and deaf, pretty much. Now, do I want... Yeah, chapter 42. Verse 19. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger that I sent? He sent someone to lay a foundation. And then he went deaf and blind. When I was fired from a congregation, I mean, uh, Church of the Great God, they removed all my sermons, all my articles I'd written in the Forerunner. Everything I had done there was removed. I was fired over a calendar issue that is going to come up again and be resolved. But they removed that series on the Minor Prophets and everything else I'd preached from February 96 on. And he closed his eyes and closed his ears to hearing and seeing and remained that way. And maybe he's waking up now based on this particular little article. We shall see. But he won't come fully awake until he sees the signs and wonders and knows this cannot be denied then he will truly wake up. Might have a little harbinger of it here, but not the fullness of it yet. So he's talking about God's servant here, the one that God sent to build the temple. says, the one I sent is blind and deaf. Okay? Seeing many things, he understands a lot, writes wonderful articles, but observes not, opening the ears but doesn't hear, doesn't get it. Hasn't since he slammed the door on it in in the year 2000, July. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. A righteous man before God. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. He's the leader. He's the one who magnifies the law and leads in the teaching of the church. Meanwhile, for a period of time, I use the analogy out to lunch, but blind and deaf applies.
Now, let's go on to uh, well, let's go on down just a little bit more here. <clears throat> the hands of Zerubbabel 9 will lay the foundation, and his hands will finish it. He will wake up and see and hear when the signs and wonders occur, and not until. And you shall know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me to you. That's an interesting phrase right there, because in about 1997 or 98, I don't remember exactly, I was standing in the door of John's office there in Charlotte, and he just out of the blue said, You did not just come here, you were sent. He was seeing and believing this message that I've been preaching for 24 years. And he could see it was so. Now, there was a calendar conference in December of 1999. I was still there. But the feast that fall, I was in Africa, and I knew that a conference on the calendar would be coming up shortly. And there were people there who had listened to Frank Nelty and others and knew that there was a problem with the calendar. And all I said to them, I didn't say which side I was on, I just said, there's a calendar controversy coming because I know that some people believe one way and some people believe another way. I said, you need to study it out and determine for yourself which is right because there will be a controversy. And that's where I left it. Well, during that feast, we were having some of the sermons come in from the States by telephone, and John was preaching, and he said, I'll quote it as close as I can remember it, he said, I see a, now the word won't come, a disparity, anyway, a difference, between the Hebrew calendar and the Bible. Help me make this leap of faith. And the whole congregation in South Africa stood up and applauded and cheered because they had believed Frank Nelty when Frank said the Jewish calendar is wrong and must be uh, abandoned. So they were already thinking that when John made that statement. Help me make this leap of faith. So he saw, clearly, enough to comment on it that the Hebrew calendar is wrong and didn't agree with the Bible. And he also admitted in that statement that he was afraid. He was scared. Help me make this leap of faith, that is, from the fear of changing it and getting in line with the Bible, because he was afraid that it would cause a split in the church. It caused, ultimately, a split between him and me. Now, after having set the table, a few months later, that conference came up about the calendar, December of 99. 
And John was going to render his decision. Now, I had gone back from the feast in South Africa and encouraged him to make the leap of faith. And a lot of people encouraged him to make the leap of faith and abandon the Hebrew calendar and go according to what the Scripture says. I did not at that time fully understand the calendar, but I knew the Jews were wrong. And John knew the Jews were wrong even though he did not fully understand the calendar, and probably still doesn't, because he mentioned it recently. Now, in that meeting, it had been called, John Reed and, and uh, I can't say her name, uh, and his wife had come in from the West Coast, Martin Collins, Richard Reitenbaugh, and their wives were at this meeting. Uh, Marla and I were there. All the ministry of of Church of the Great God were there and their wives. So John convened the meeting with prayer and I raised my hand and I said, I'd like to say something before we get into the calendar. So I went around the room, started with to the right side of John and asked each Elder, and then his wife, who is Zerubbabel? And as we went around the room, everyone there pointed at John or said, John is it. Every one of them, elders and wives. And when the circle was complete and got back to John, he said, that must not get out of this room. He recognized it. He had accepted it, as had every his wife, his son, every elder, and their wives. By saying that can't get out of this room, he had not wanted to accept what I was preaching about all this. But he had almost had to. He says, don't let it out of this room. And I understand why he said that. Because that would have shaken the Church of the Great God. It would have made the Church of the Great God look like they were just like everybody else proclaiming who the two witnesses were. And I've met a few dozen of them over the years. Kooks. Or people who didn't understand. Or had raised themselves to it. Or whatever. But he had accepted, essentially, that that was the case. And everybody there did. And I've not said much about it since then. I've mentioned him uh, obliquely and a few times over the years by name, I'm sure. But I haven't made a big deal out of it. Now, his hands will finish it. And I do believe he is the right branch the right bow, the right bow, who was from the north and comes from the east. He was born in Pennsylvania up in the north, and now he's on the east coast, the south, North Carolina. And when he comes, he will come from the east, as Isaiah says. Now, he probably would not like me saying these things, 
But all I'm doing is explaining to you the background of two paragraphs that he wrote and giving you the Scriptures to back them up. He knows the first one, then the other, will come to the attention of the church. One will come through signs and wonders, and then they will see eye to eye, and then they will get together. Let's go to Zechariah 6. Man, where did the time go? Uh, here, here he's talking about his spirit being quieted, God is, and crowns to be put on Joshua. Speak to him, saying, Thus speaks the eternal of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. This is the same language of Zechariah 3. And he says to Joshua, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Okay? Right and bow is the right branch. And he shall grow up out of his place, started small, not by might, and he shall build the temple of the eternal. So Zerubbabel is clearly said to be Zerubbabel because it says Zerubbabel will be the one who builds the temple there in Zechariah 4. Even he shall build the temple of the eternal, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, <coughs> and the council of peace shall be between them both. So the two are going to see eye to eye, Isaiah 52, 8, and they'll have peace between them for a change. And they that are far off, verse 15, shall come and build in the temple, the gathering, the remnant, and you shall know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Eternal, your God. So all these prophecies are determined upon our obedience to God. And if we are diligently obedient, it will happen. Now Joshua is used specifically on that because Christ said that the high priest of men would have to come and have all his clothes clean before he could go into uh, the Ark of the Covenant once a year. So he had to cleanse himself before he could represent the people. So that is the case here. But the branch is going to come up out of that which has already been established and preached. So when he says this, he had to understand these scriptures in order to say them. Okay? We'll see first, then the other, come to the attention of the church. A spiritual unity, eye to eye, peace between them. Where did he read that? Well, we just read it. <coughs> we'll develop as church members voluntarily submit themselves to be fed and led by the two. And he read that in chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. <coughs> where the oil will feed all seven churches. Well, let's start wrapping this up. He says then in chapter, paragraph 2, if we know. Now, he apparently knows something. It includes us. If we know <coughs> what to look for. What have you been told to be looking for for the last 24 years? Huh? 
because we are familiar with the patterns God has revealed to us in the Scriptures. So he's saying the patterns in the Scriptures is what we need to know. So he obviously knows them. But he didn't explain it all here in a long article, did he? Well, why? Why did he just give us this much? It will put us into the position to see God regathering and reforming the church from the destructive calamity that he put it in for its good. So here he's recognizing how peace and unity will come to the church. I did a series of sermons on that way back. How will unity come to the church? How will peace come to the church? Those are on file on our website. And what was the answer? What he's saying here. What I've been telling you about today in this sermon that's getting long. He's actively creating whatever it takes to save his people from their sins. Well, that's all the time I have. I had another section I wanted to get into here. And maybe I'll reserve it for next week because we have the first month coming up Tuesday night. Wednesday's the first day of the first month of the new year. And these pertain to that and something you need to be praying for. So I didn't have time to cover it today. I'll get to it next week, I hope. So we'll stop here for today. But isn't that odd to you? that a man who normally writes in great detail and gives you all the scriptures for what he's saying doesn't do it, but makes four or five succinct points here without explaining any of it and just lays it out there. That is odd to me. That is unusual. It has never been done by John Reitenbaugh before in this way. What does he know? What does he expect? Does he feel it's close? How close? Close enough that he wrote us two paragraphs to remind us. And to let us know what he is thinking without telling us why he is thinking it. That makes these two paragraphs to me very, very important. 